we must admit that we do not have the situation under control. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. Welcome to The World We Want, Youth Voices on Climate and Health. My name is Jonathan Foster, and on this podcast, I speak to youth leaders and activists, not only about the reality of our current environmental and health crisis, but also about the possibilities, alternatives, and ideas for transformation and for change. We find out what youth activists are doing, and we find out what you could do to help build the world we want. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. Hello. Now imagine for a moment that you were 22 years old and a member of the UN's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change, which means that you would have a direct line to Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations. What would you say to him? And imagine that you were the advocacy manager of an organisation called Youth and Environment Europe, and you were the co-founder of Generation Climate Europe, as well as the only young member of the European Environmental Bureau. So, what would you do with all of that access and responsibility? Well, for Nathan Metenier, there's no need to imagine, because that is his reality. In this fifth episode of The World We Want, I'm going to speak to Nathan about his ideas for change. And you might be surprised about what he has to say. You might imagine that if you've reached such dizzy heights at the age of 22, you might not want to rock the boat. After all, you're benefiting from the system, so best to try and protect the status quo. (laughs) Well, not Nathan. But before I speak to Nathan... Here's a thought experiment to get us in the right frame of mind, or, more to the point, to get us out of our frame of mind. So yesterday I was walking through Gamla Stan in Stockholm, Sweden. Gamla Stan means Old Town, but of course it wasn't always known as the Old Town, because in the past... It wasn't old. It was just the town. Walking through Gamlestan means actually walking through a physical manifestation of the way people thought in the past. Now here's what I mean. The architecture, the buildings and the streets in Gamlestan are all a reflection of the social structures, the behaviours, the institutions and the technologies of their time. The streets are narrow because they were built for pedestrians. Yes, there were horses and carts, but only a few people owned such things, so the narrow streets reflected the social behaviour and economic distribution. And the street names reflected economic behaviours as well. Skormakagarten, or the Shoemaker's Street, is where people made and sold shoes. Fiskatoriet, or Fisherman's Square, is where, you guessed it, people bought or sold fish. So when I took my walk through Gamlestan yesterday, I was actually walking through a physical manifestation of the lives of people from the past. 
I was walking through their technology, through their ways of thinking, their social structures. There it was, all around me. The internal landscapes of human social behaviour built into external material form. So what about today? The cities we build and the social institutions we design today are all a reflection of the internal landscapes of our minds. Today's world is the physical manifestation of our way of thinking. Because just like the people who built Gamlistan, we are building a world that reflects our institutions, our technologies, our social structures and our values and principles. And just like them, we are building on top of the past, taking from the past and adding to it to create a future. Now the problem is that the world we live in today is in big trouble. There is something about the way we think that puts our external world in danger. The climate emergency, mass extinctions, the health crises, these are all a reflection of our current internal mindscapes. Now you might say that this is obvious. I mean, yeah, we all know that society reflects the way people think. So why am I going on about it? Well, because the challenge we're facing is the challenge of changing our minds. The challenges of adapting our internal thinking to our external world. And we've discovered it's not as easy as we imagine. There's something holding us back. Edward O. Wilson, a Harvard professor of sociobiology, was once asked if humans could solve the crisis we are currently confronting, and he answered by saying, yes, if we're honest and smart. The real problem, he said, of humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Now, there's not a huge amount we can do straight away about our paleolithic emotions but we can improve our medieval institutions and that way we can get a grip on our godlike technologies. But that means taking a good, hard look at the way we think and making some honest and smart choices. And that's what youth leaders like Nathan are asking for, to change the power structures within the institutions that we have today so that we don't go on building a world in danger and instead build the world we want, so that in the future there'll be a Gamlistan for them too. Hi Nathan, how are you? I'm good, how are you Jonathan? So I started by asking Nathan to tell me a little bit about where he grew up and how he first got involved in climate activism. How did he start his journey? Yeah, I grew up in the Alps, um, in the mountains, the French Alps, uh, not so far from Italy. I remember 
our school was like front of this absolutely amazing landscape. So I guess I've always been involved, like, you know, like small, small stuff, like at school. Um, I've always been quite aware of those issues. Um, but I think what um, struck me the most was um, during COP21. Um, so in Paris, 2015, so I was 15 and I was um, in a high school. So um, in, in the suburb of Grenoble. So I was then studying in the city um, and I was like, you know, there's this going on. It's so important. Maybe we can get an agreement. I, I wasn't understanding what was going on, but I knew it was important. I knew it was great for um, what I had observed, right? Like the climate crisis around me. And I thought, let's do like a climate week or like a small COP21 in my high school. And I think that's the first time I had to like lobby different people, making sure like I wanted some kind of civil society, not just scientific scientists coming. And I had to lobby everyone. And the school was like, no, we can't have these people. This is like, you know, not neutral. And so I was like, why is it not neutral? And, you know, I, I think at that moment, I actually um, went through a lot of different things that I've been doing for the past six years, you know, at a very different level. Um, and, and at the end, what I also realized is that, you know, I've not understood the, the, the climate crisis as, you know, a science, science issue or as biodiversity as a climate issue, but much more as, as a social justice issue. And I've always linked uh, those dimensions together in all the different initiatives I've led. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's how I, I yeah, I got into it. And then um, at the university, I was kind of involved in different initiatives. Um, I, I also studied um, in Scotland and then that's how the whole kind of youth climate movement, you know, the youth climate movement had existed, but I think I had never realized that what I was going in my communities during those years, so from like, you know, being 15 to 19, well, there was actually young folks doing exactly the same almost everywhere in the world. And I think that has been one of the most passionating thing. And for me, that's, you know, when people say like, what do you think about Greta? What do you think about the Greta effect? And I think that's the Greta effect. It's just kind of this realization that my co-anxiety and my action in my communities, while some others were doing it everywhere uh, at the same time. And I think that was really, really something that, that really kind of empowered me. And that's where I realized that there's actually not just local networks, but there's also national networks and there's like European networks, international networks. And then that's how I got involved in all of this and then did like um, a lot of different stuff with different um, uh, regions and, and institutions and yeah. I love that idea that the Greta effect is about understanding that there are networks of other people feeling exactly the same way you do. It's like a family you didn't even know you had. <laughs> Okay, so that brings me to the idea you mentioned uh, that tackling the climate crisis is more than just a question of science. It's really a social issue, right? Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, for sure. Well, first, of course, the climate crisis and not just mitigation. It's not just about removing CO2. It's not just about not taking a car. It's not just about stopping your footprint and so on. I think it's much, much bigger than this because what we realized is that those who are the most impacted are also those who have been usually the most discriminated against in history, those who have always been marginalized in history. And so we're realizing that a lot of different things we're doing in tackling the climate crisis is actually, um, you know, putting even more on those who are the most marginalized. And this is true for, for example, 
taxes, eco taxes. We've seen with the yellow vest, like, you know, let's do this. But then who is eating the most? Those who have to take car. And usually in rural areas is the poorest, those who have to drive most, and therefore they're the most impacted. And I think that's really is what we call the, the white environmentalism. It's this perspective on solving the climate crisis by looking, it, looking at it from a very kind of energy slash climate change perspective. Um, and then to answer your question, then therefore, if you're not placing yourself in this dynamic, but rather in a kind of much more um, comprehensive um, understanding of the issue, understanding that the social, and, and the kind of um, environmental are completely linked, then it really changes everything, I think, because then you, you, you also consider the work you're doing um, in a very different way. And for example, what I've noticed in the youth climate movement is that we pay a lot of attention um, to making sure that everyone is feeling safe, that there is a lot of diversity, that is very inclusive, that is a lot of well-being. Of course, this is not always happening, um, but I think it's because we share this vision of also different society and, and this system change. And for example, one of the organization I'm involved in um, called Youth for Nature is a completely horizontal organization. And I think that really shows how, and it's a challenge, of course, every week, every day, every month, um, but still it shows that we also have a different vision of what we want to achieve and how we want to achieve it. So it's not just about the what, but it's also about the how. And, and I've seen that in many different organizations, many different groups, and I think this is fascinating. This is, for me, also bringing a new kind of proposal on 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 how we we want to do things um in society in community right like together so in the youth climate movement as you say there's a, there's a vision for a different society with more diversity and better representation and you yourself have thought about the internal structure of institutions in order to bring that about you, you just mentioned youth for nature being a horizontal organization uh, so recognizing the internal structure and diversity inside any institution uh, has an effect on how it can impact the external world and you want to change those things. C can you expand a bit on this idea? Yeah, so I mean, as I said, like those who have been um, impacting them. So I think the first kind of like kind of understanding is those who are the most impacted are often those who have been um, the most marginalized. So this is true, for example, with indigenous people. It's true also with uh, small islands. I mean, if you look at the AOs, this group, it's actually super interesting because most of them have also been colonized islands. And therefore, it's not just that, you know, sea is rising. It's also that sea is rising for islands that have been systematically colonized by, um, uh, you know, kind of global North countries. And therefore they don't have the infrastructure because they've been maintained in this relationship of power where they often have very high debt. So, you know, why is a heat wave uh, hitting so hard some of these islands? It's also because based on this colonial relationship, they didn't have the means, you know, to adapt, to get develop developed enough and so on. So I think that's the first understanding is looking at how um, the history, the kind of colonial power relationship are impacted, impacted, have impacted and are impacting um, some places much more than el elsewhere. But I think another, under, another, another understanding of this kind of conversation around intersectionality and, and, and the kind of combination between social and climate justice is, of course, um, looking at two things. First, 
who has been doing all of that during all those years? Well, it's always been male, but it's also always been white male. Um, and, and this is the kind of additional layer I bring is I also think it's straight white male. Because um, I, I do think that white male of LGBTQI plus um, are, are a bit in a different uh, category. Um, and I think this is also where we need more diversity. So it's not just about also, you know, kind of, looking at this colonial power relationship and, and, and who is impacted the most, but it's also looking at who's done it. And I think when you look today, who's still in power everywhere, it's white male straight. And I think that's really something we should look at. And I think that's why we're not just asking for, you know, more climate action or and so on. We're also asking for diversity. We're also asking for, for different leaders. And what I think is a very pragmatic way to look at this is, is actually from from a kind of election point of view, you know, everyone say there's no trust in the institutions, people do not trust institutions. But at the end of the day, um, well, you know, if there's no trust in the institutions, it's also because people cannot recognize themselves in these specific institutions. And, and I think this is really true when you look at the European Parliament, it's so overwhelmingly wide. When you look at the environmental movement in Europe, it's so overwhelmingly wide. And I think it really takes um, a different kind of um, approach to who is making the law, who is getting elected and so on. And I think, for example, personally, I'm convinced that one of the most powerful things we could do today um, is getting our AOCs in, in, in Europe. So making sure um, that we have uh, some amazing leaders from amazing marginalized communities getting elected and representing those folks and those perspectives to the highest level. And that's the work we do at Youth and Environment Europe. Of course, we're, we're an NGO, so we're not doing it, uh, you know, we're not like training people to run for campaigns or anything. But what we're doing is making sure that young folks from every single community in Europe, not, not just the EU, not just Western Europe, everywhere. So we're also talking about the Baltic Sea, we're talking also um, about the Black Sea, about the Balkans, uh, about Russia and so on, making sure that those um, voices and perspectives can get represented and, and some young folks from these communities can get empowered um, and, and understand also and, and, you know, bring those perspectives to the highest level. Um, so, yeah. Could I ask you what you think about something I'm going to call the chicken and egg problem? <laughs> and by that, I mean, in order to get people to trust institutions more and for institutions themselves to be able to tackle the various crises better, where would you like to have the most impact first, on the people who hold power or on the values and principles that those people in power hold? Mm -hmm. But I think I think those who can change those values and let's call it right, like the neoliberal kind of understanding of how society could work. I don't, I don't, I don't just think it's just capitalism. I think it goes in every kind of ways we we behave, we interact we build society and we just are together in general. I think to change those values and principles, um, you need to have different kind of people in, in power and, and coming from different kind of um, uh, roots and, 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 you know, kind of categories of, of societies. Um, and I think that would then change those values and principle because I, 
I think there is much, much more empathy. There is a much bigger understanding of what it means to, you know, suffer, um, what it means to be um, on the side, to be discriminated. And I think when we've experienced that, if you're in, in position of power, then you will change things. You will make sure that and then um, there's not just a small groups of people who get absolutely everything. And then we're all struggling on the side and, and you know, not knowing um, if we'll be able to, to kind of, you know, not lose our homes and not lose our... Um, islands, culture, we talk a lot about loss and damage, but the way which I think is so interesting, you know, it's not just like losing your home, you're losing your um, your property, but it's also like the thing we can't count, like, you know, culture, language, um, um, all these things that are so important um, to identity as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's what we need to change those values. I don't think they can be changed in any other ways um, than by having different people also in power. Okay, so there there is a, a structural problem there within the institutions that wield power. So how do you see change happening? What kind of mechanism could you envisage that would help to make institutions more representative? Because I mean, to play devil's advocate just for a moment, one thing that many institutions are very good at is reproducing themselves, right? So far, the way I get around this question um, is by thinking that if we had stronger, more organized um, communities, civil society groups, um, kind of, you know, organized civil society, really embedded in social justice principle, kind of, you know, what we call climate justice, like looking at the climate crisis through the lenses of social justice. I think we can really get more from our states if we have some kind of very well-organized civil society communities um, that are embedded in climate justice principles. Because I think that what it would do is it would show to everyone that actually we can really bring together the kind of, you know, all those groups fighting for social justice and all those groups fighting for like more conservation or whatever. And I think that would be really powerful in pushing our states and showing our states that anything you do, which is one sustainable and second socially fair then it's great for everyone it's great for you know those who are struggling the most in our societies and it's great for you know the planet and and i think that would actually strive a really good agenda and then the states would be more willing to well you know get together maybe g7 uh, setting and then say okay let's 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 tax those billionaires because clearly um that's that's you know not okay so that's why I'm, I'm just thinking that in our theory of change, I don't see any other way than having extremely well-organized and strong civil society fighting for climate justice. And therefore, not just asking for more climate action or conservation, because that makes absolutely no sense if you're not at the same time trying to tackle world's inequalities and, and those issues of you know, wealth and so on. Great. So raising awareness and changing the internal power structures within institutions and so forth is apparently vital. Um, but I'm wondering if we could bring the conversation around a little bit so that we don't only talk from a top-down perspective. Um, there's a lot of people I'm thinking about who don't come from privileged backgrounds, who don't go to universities, who don't spend their time in the circles that make decisions but spend their time in the places where those decisions affect them. What do you say to those people? How do you encourage them to engage in the processes that will bring about the changes that you're talking about? 
yeah, that like, and as you said, like policies that affect them, but also where policies have to be implemented, right? So I guess it, 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 communities and especially the most marginalized are the most affected, but also the more, um, the, the one who can gain the most from, you know, kind of climate inclusive, fair climate policies. Well, you know how much this is important for me, and it's it's so much at the core of the work I do at, at Youth and Environment Europe. Youth and Environment Europe was um, created in the 80s, and, and it's always had a very strong membership in the Balkans and in the Black Sea region. And so it's always driven a very kind of, yeah, social understanding of the climate crisis, of the environmental crisis, which is so, so interesting. And what we're doing right now is we're doing two things. First, we're, we're looking at what's going on in the ground and showcasing this work. So we showcase the work of like amazing activists from like marginalized communities all around Europe um, that are doing, you know, amazing things to tackle the climate crisis in their communities and so on. So kind of giving them the fair share of kind of, you know, kind of global coverage and so on. We have an amazing partnership with Euronews where we showcase every month an amazing story. And what we do is also supporting um, our members, supporting those groups financially to do their work. So for example, what we're gonna start very soon um, this year is supporting financially groups that work with Roma communities, for example, on the climate crisis or supporting um, a French youth organization to work more with rural youth and kind of understanding uh, how they can work together, uh, supporting work in conservation, for example, in Albania, um, and making sure that, you know, young folks have support and so on. Um, and I think that's that's how by supporting very targeted um, kind of grassroots action on the ground that are inherently working on climate justice, we can bring about change in the communities, in the cities, in the states and all of that. And I think that's that's really bringing everyone together. So when we bring everyone together and create the kinds of changes you want, what will the world look like? What kind of a world will we end up with? Yeah, I guess <laughs> I guess I, I'd love a world, a world where like kind of first elites and so on wouldn't go right away in like consulting firms and like you know all these jobs and so on because it's so sad that so many amazing people instead of like working in climate justice and environmental um, justice they go working for this big consulting firm just because that's the only one where you get like a fair kind of you know um, like living and so on exactly yeah <laughs> money so that's really sad because I think it comes back again to the question of funding and so on and you know it's related also to debt right like when you're a student you have so many debts and loans like you have them to make money and where do you make money in the worst jobs like it's just like again like we're all completely close and there's a couple that can like avoid but why can they avoid that either because they haven't studied either because they're they're already wealthy right and they don't have loans and debts um so that would be a first thing I think it's a very concrete as well thing um but it's I think a big issue um and of course what I love to see as well um is much more as I said much more funding for climate justice work because I really believe that climate justice is the way forward and and you know, I'm, I was reading this weekend that many of the American founders in the past years have been increasing their funding to nuclear power research and nuclear power kind of community organizing and making sure that in the US or other countries, there's more funding that goes for this. And, you know, I just find that so sad that like, because we're not able to get together and think about these issues from like a kind of more holistic perspective, the only 
kind of solution we have is like to invest in nuclear power to decarbonize our economy. Like this is so sad to me because it's not solving any problem. It's just postponing them. There will still be social inequalities. There will still be the climate crisis. There will still be biodiversity destruction. And, and I think this is very sad. So I'd love a world where um, we're looking at reducing our energy, especially in the global north, especially the wealthiest, instead of just looking for different sources so that we can just keep exactly as we're doing, but just with another kind of source of energy. And maybe last, um, I think I'd love to see a couple of like amazing leaders um, that are very much focusing on empathy, well-being, and and you know I'm I'm not I'm not a big fan of like saviors who are gonna come and so on. Um, so I wish this, I wish yeah, um, there will be less ego and we can get together. And I think women, we just need women to to lead that, and that would be better. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I definitely like that idea, Nathan. Um, yeah, good. And thank you so much for your time uh, again. And thank you for your work and your intellectual curiosity um, and for getting yourself involved in this important uh, work. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thanks very much and goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. To find out more about Youth for Nature, go to www.youthfornature.org. That's four with the number four. Youthfornature.org. So there you go. How can we make sure that the gamma stance of the future reflect an inclusive set of values and principles that represent the whole spectrum of beautiful expressions of the human experience? Of course, to achieve this, you can't just walk through this metaphorical town. You have to build it too, because everything we do today shapes tomorrow. So what are you going to do today? Thanks for listening. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. This podcast is brought to you by the Prince Mahadon Award Conference in collaboration with the Swedish Institute for Global Health Transformation, FHI 360, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the British Medical Journal, USAID, and Jonathan Foster of Foster Media.